Welcome back to 50 States of Mind. A lot has changed in the world since our last episode. Things have gotten even more dire within our democracy. So it seemed like a great opportunity to dive back in, have difficult conversations, re-examine our preconceived notions, and be self-critical to try to understand what is really going on on the ground through stories from all 50 states. I'm Ryan Bernston, and welcome back to 50 States of Mind. Welcome back to 50 States of Mind. I am absolutely chuffed to have one of my favorite people here on the podcast with me. Well, not physically here. We're recording remotely. Hashtag COVID COVID. What is your name and how do we know each other? Hi, I'm Michelle, and we know each other because we were both on Team Slytherin for Hogwarts Tournament of Houses. If you watch the show, she is the one smack dab in the center, the tall, willowy, gorgeous one that all of my cousins are now in love with. They're all between the ages of 13 and 18, so you've got some fans in the Bernstein family. Let's talk about it. I mean, it's the best thing that ever happened to us, right? Absolutely. Highlight of the life. What was your favorite part besides meeting me? Well, meeting you was definitely up there. Meeting Helen Mirren, also up there, but I find you two very comparable personalities. So <laughs> it blends. I'll take it. Um, I think walking out of that fireplace, very intimidating. I was terrified I'd trip, but also I could feel as we were doing it, like, oh, this is going to look so cool on TV. We're going to look so cool. Uh, and then just playing the game. You know, I love trivia. I love competitions. I love flexing weird Harry Potter knowledge. So the whole thing was kind of a dream come true. Yeah, you walking out of the fireplace, like that was a masterclass in walking out of a fireplace. You <laughs> like confidently strode to the podium. You were like aware of the space, the camera. The, you acknowledged the audience, but you're also like on a journey of your own. I thought it was amazing. Like we're recording a podcast right now and not everything is going to make it in the final episode. Was there anything you missed that you talked about or something that happened from the filming that didn't make it in the final episode? There is one moment that I'm so sad we lost, which was during the question, uh, the audio only question obscuro in the final episode where the answer was Hedwig. You and I were actually talking a lot about, well, does a bird count as a friend because the wording of the question was which of Harry's friends is he with and I said I have a pet bird and he's my best friend and they cut my Bert reference and he never got his five minutes of fame I was so sad you don't just love birds you like it's part of your brand your Instagram is Michelle loves birds technically only Michelle likes birds but I I do think loves birds would be more appropriate oh it's just likes well maybe that's why they cut it well that's because uh you know you like things on Instagram and I was like what am I doing on this platform I am liking pictures of birds got it okay (laughs) I've never been exposed to a lot of birds but actually I'll tell this short anecdote on the the trip that we're here to talk about Uh, There was one night that I couldn't find a place to stay in Pennsylvania, so I got on at like 8 p.m. and booked an Airbnb at this farmhouse, and I, it was like one of those situations where you like put in the code, it lets you in, and I was staying at someone's house, someone else was there, and it was just a bedroom upstairs, there was a hot tub, but it was too late to use it, and I walk in the house, and I'm like, hello, and I hear, hello, it's like, yeah, it's me. Sorry, it's kind of late. I'm just going to go upstairs. And then I just, hello, and like rustling around. And I was 
scared out of my mind that I was there with some <laughs> sort of insane person. And I went up, slept in my room, like heard rustling around. The next morning I woke up and there was this lady and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry I wasn't home last night, but hopefully my bird didn't keep you up. And I'm like, oh, uh-huh. it was. Oh my God. It was a, what, what, what's the macaw? What are the ones that say hello? It could be a macaw. Was it, did you see it? Yeah, it was like green. Green, probably, probably a macaw, maybe like a conure. Tough to say. Okay, okay. Either way, it freaked me out. Do you have a bird story? Every day of my life is a bird story. <laughs> um, but I can tell you, let's see. When I first got Bert, it was down between him and one other cockatiel because those were the two available at Petland that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, all right, like, let's, how about you hold them so you figure out which one you like? And so they grabbed Bert out of the cage. He was fighting like hell. He did not want to be given to a 10-year-old. Uh, and they put Bert into my hands, and he immediately just took off, flew across the store, started hiding. I was like, ah, yes, that one. The chase. That's the one I want. The chase. So... So that's how I got Bert. And they were like, don't you want to try the other bird? And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I, I found him. When you know, that's you know. Boy. Does Bert, like, socialize with other birds? We took him once to a meeting of the Hawaii Parrot Society. Uh, he did not like it. He hated it. He wanted to leave as soon as he got there. So I, I think back at that point, they called it something like the Aloha Parrot Club. I'm not quite sure because I was maybe 13. Um but it's a bunch of people who have birds and they just bring their birds out. Uh, this meeting was at a park, so it was just a bunch of people with parrots at the park. And I guess a perfect segue into what we're here to talk about. Uh, you know, we're trying to uncover 50 states of mind. And today uh, we have a real opportunity because we're talking about the state of Hawaii uh, with someone who has lived in the state of Hawaii, who has gone to bird gatherings in the state of Hawaii. So (laughs) Michelle, tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship uh, to birds in Hawaii and Hawaii in general. Yeah, well, birds in Hawaii, it's it's mostly that one event and seeing the wild birds because the other bird didn't want to socialize with other birds. Um, So I grew up mostly in Hawaii. Uh, I was born in Massachusetts, but we moved to Hawaii when I was about nine years old, and I lived there ever since. Um, I went to, you know, one school the whole time I was there, so I didn't really tour around all the different Hawaii schools, Um, but it was a very, like, warm and fuzzy nurturing school and very prototypically Hawaiian. There were, you know, palm trees between the Uh, school buildings and there was a fish pond in the middle of it with like a bunch of lily pads and birds Uh, and that type of thing really doesn't exist in any other state because it's maybe Florida but it's going to get too cold otherwise. I when I first moved there I actually thought it was only going to be for one year because we'd originally planned to move back to Massachusetts after one year it was like a a cultural exchange of sorts that my mom had engineered Um, so I did all the Hawaii things you know I took some hula lessons. I was terrible at hula. Um, I tried surfing, horrible, did not become a pro surfer. And then my mom decided, you know, this place has better weather. There's more Asians here because back in Massachusetts, I was the only Asian kid aside from my sisters in the whole school, um, pretty much in the whole neighborhood. So we decided to stay. 
And when you found out that you were moving to Hawaii at the age of nine, like what did you expect? What did you know about the state? When I thought it was going to be for a year, I was tepidly excited. Um, we'd gone to Hawaii a bunch for various family vacations prior. So I knew the vacation side of Hawaii and I thought, oh, you know, we're going to be in a hotel and go to the pool every day and eat a lot of food at a nice restaurant on the beach. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was sad to leave my friends. I didn't particularly want to go, despite my really idealized picture of what it would be if we did go. When I found out we were staying there forever at the end of one year, I was absolutely devastated. I kind of hated it, and I had to grow to love Hawaii more so than I did right. originally. Well, you think about it. I mean, you could not have gone farther in the United States. Right. East Coast, tip, tip, tip of the East Coast in Boston to Hawaii. And where where, where did you live in Hawaii when you moved there? And we were down sort of in the Ainahaina area, a little bit west of Ainahaina. So we were, to put it into perspective, maybe a 20-minute drive into Waikiki with assuming normal traffic conditions. So okay. not too far from the hub and the center of things, but still not quite in the city center. I still don't understand. I, I've been to Kauai and is Oahu the big island with Honolulu? Uh, so Oahu is the big island in terms of population. It has most of the people, um, all of the main you know cities and commerce and things like that. Uh, the big island itself ge is the geographically biggest island, and that's the island of Hawaii. And so Honolulu is on Oahu. So Honolulu is on Oahu. Waikiki is on Oahu. Um, the North Shore, which is small but is blowing up as a tourist location these days, is also on Oahu. Pretty much, if you've heard about it in Hawaii pop culture, it's probably Oahu. What did you learn about the culture of Hawaii actually living there? Because, you know, I just feel like everyone has a very rosy picture of it. And I'm sure when you move there and it's sort of like a, a getting to know this place you're living for a year and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm here for the mm -hmm. long haul. Is there something that you started to pick up on that's like, oh, this is different from back home? Yeah. I mean, when I first moved there, it definitely was more of a superficial understanding of Hawaii history and culture. I was lucky enough that I transferred in to my school in fourth grade and fourth grade's the year they take all the kids on a big trip to the big island. So you know, we've spent the whole year really learning about Hawaiian history and culture and volcanoes and that sort of nature, native birds. I was thrilled. And, you know, we went and we took that trip. And then it wasn't until I was maybe a bit older that I started understanding more about actual Hawaii culture. Um, I didn't appreciate, for example, when I moved there, any ethnic difference at all between there and Massachusetts. And obviously there's a huge, huge difference. And my older sister noticed it um, because my mom had originally thought to move us there because she was starting to pick up on some racial issues in Massachusetts. I was still too young. I had no idea. You know, once I got older, I realized, oh, in Hawaii, if you are half some sort of Asian and half some sort of white, you sort of are the norm. Um, there are certainly people there who are full white, full Asian, neither white nor Asian, but it seems like most people there are half and half, which uh, is hapa. Um, so I, I sort of grew up having the same sense of racial ignorance that a lot of people 
who are white people grow up with on the mainland USA in that I just didn't think about it. I was in the majority. Um, it wasn't until I went to college at NYU that I started to realize, oh, you know, that's not the normal experience to be half Asian, but feel like an ethnic majority. So I would say that's something that I really, it took a long time for me mm. to notice it as something uniquely Hawaii, but it definitely is something that doesn't really exist outside of there. Uh, there's also the fact that people are so, so much more relaxed in Hawaii, um, which is sort of a stereotype, but also sort of true. You kind of have to get used to, you know, if you want somebody to come and do something for you, but the surf's really good that day, you kind of got to understand that like, okay, maybe this doesn't have to be done right today. Maybe we're going to go do that instead. And this can be done a different day. Hmm. Uh, it's not that it won't get done. It just might not get done that day. Yeah. It's like, it's, everything's a little flexible to conditions changing. Yeah. I, it sounds like how I operate. Um, okay. So I have two questions. Answer either of them, both of them, none of them. But the first question is, you said your mom was sort of picking up on racial, I don't know if you use the word tensions in Massachusetts. Has she ever talked to you about that? What that is? She has now that I'm an adult. I had no idea any of this was happening as a kid. Honestly, until a couple years ago, I don't know that I really picked up on any of that. But it, it wasn't so much tensions. Like we went to a very liberal school. It was considered the diverse school because they had us. They had a few, you know, black or Indian or, you know, one Japanese kid. But my older sister, Christine, who must have been like 10 at the time, would come home from school crying one day after a school play because the PTA mom doing the makeup said, oh, I don't really know what to put on her eyes. And it wasn't so much like an aggressive, like go back to where you came from, but you know, enough that it would make a young girl feel like, wait, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be in the school play with the same makeup as my friend Rebecca? Yeah. And people would also, apparently, when we were babies, always ask my mom, oh, where did you get them? Her favorite story to tell is this one woman, we were at a, a pool, like a, a public pool in our town. And this one woman comes over smoking a cigarette. My mom always puts on the voice, so I'll put it on too. She's looking at my sisters and I playing in the pool. She's looking at my mom watching us. She goes over to my mom. So are they sisters? And my mom said, oh, yeah, like they are sisters, thinking it was just conversation about her kids. And the woman said, God bless you for taking in the whole family. Like we were some Chinese orphans. Because uh, my mom is white. Just to, to put that for context, we, yeah. we don't look that much like my mom. The voice really makes it. It really makes it, right? Wow. Yeah. So she was very, I was too young. I wasn't aware, but she was very aware that, you know, this could pose issues if the kids get too old and start to pick up on it. So that was part of the impetus of moving to Hawaii. I think at the time she told us that it was just, oh, it's pretty. The weather's better. But I, I think, you know, as adults, we can all acknowledge that was the main drive. Okay. So having left that, the chain smoking woman mm. making uh, inappropriate <laughs> assumptions about your family, mm. you said then, was it Hapa? Hapa, yeah. So Hapa is the Hawaiian word for half. Um, and it's what they use to refer to people who are half and half. half, and half. Typically, if you just say Hapa, it means half Asian, half white, because that's the most common one there. 
Um, but sometimes they'll specify Hapahauli to say you're half white. Mm, okay. I think it's interesting because the Asian is implied. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So you mentioned that you grew up in a majority Hapa state, a majority Hapa community. That was the norm. And then you went to school in New York City, also famously diverse, but probably not Hapa majority. Mm-hmm. What was it like going from a sort of majority community to no longer being in a, in a similar majority? Well, my program at NYU was particularly white because I went to study vocal performance and musical theater, which almost all my classmates were very, very white, a lot you know, Midwestern white, Northeastern white. Um, How have we never talked, as someone who studied musical theater, it is a white major. White with two W's, like three H's. Yeah, yeah. White. So it, it, it sort of was a trial by fire in learning that I was not in fact white because everyone would say, oh, well, you know, you you could so be in The King and I. And I'd be like, oh, I like that show. Yeah, that's a good show. And then I realized, oh, wait, they're only telling me I can be in The King and I. They're not saying any other shows. I would have classmates like, oh, you're going to have such an advantage when you graduate. They're looking to hire diverse people. I'm like, well, I'm not a diverse person. I'm a person. Like, I, I knew what they meant. But it became a very race-focused environment, because everyone was focusing on, all right, what can I play? What types of characters could I pass as? And it it was definitely jarring to go to that from a place where I didn't think about my race at all. But it was also, I think, a good experience to be able to start thinking about that sort of thing in a way that I might not have explored as much if I'd just stayed in Hawaii. That's really interesting because you didn't need to examine it because it was normal. And then you go to theater school where your job is to examine every last thing about you, how others see you, how you are read when you walk into a room. And it's actually going from like zero to 60 about that. Mm -hmm. And when people are saying you should be in the King and I, you're not, they're probably not talking about Anna. Yeah. You know, jokes on them. Only thing I've ever been called in for in the King and I is the Anna understudy. So jokes on them. You read Anna to me. Thank you. It's the height. The height does it. I forgot about this part of your life. This is something that I, I just, I, I guess it's, I forgot that we had this in common. Yeah. So it kind of adds some new, um, like a new level to sort of the recording we're going to talk about today. Because you've lived in Hawaii, um, I feel like we can kind of dive into this uh, recording that, that I have prepared and just, I'm just going to give you some context around it. So basically a lot of people I met on the trip were theater people. The, the most generous people on the trip to me were tended to be people who were in the theater community. Said, "Oh, I know someone who's uh, a theater director in Alaska." Actually, my the people in Hawaii uh, introduced me to someone who was in Alaska, and then we ended up linking up that way, or it might have been vice versa. I can't mm-hmm. remember. But Jess, who's a theater professor at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu, one of her co-professors, her son was. Uh, turning 21, and they were having a 21st birthday party on sacred tribal lands. And I think the thing that I maybe didn't convey in the recording is how awkward it was that I was there. 
and that I was sort of there like, hey, like, I want to learn what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And the, the parents were very encouraging of me being there. Like, oh, go, go out with the kids. And we ended up going out on this kayak and the kids were all speaking to each other in Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. So very awkward for me, just sitting there trying to like glean information, wanting to make conversation, but very much feeling like an outsider, maybe a pest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this moment happened where a sea turtle just happened to come up next to the boat and take a breath of air. And that sort of broke open the conversation because they introduced this idea of Ia. And that is a breath of air, a moment to refresh yourself and pointed out this idea of as native Hawaiian people being in a situation where like the values of the United States, the economy of the United States is very much imposed on them. Moments like this, being together, celebrating their traditions, eating poi, Mm -hmm. uh, away from all of that was like a breath of fresh air. And that kind of cracked open the conversation. So uh, unfortunately, we are going to listen to me explain what happened uh, as opposed to straight from the source. So let's, uh, let's get it over with. And then right after that, I got picked up by Jess, who is a is a professor at the Department of Theater at Hawaii, and she was just awesome. She said, you know, I've got this friend named Haile Okua, who is a native Hawaiian playwright, and she writes a native Hawaiian, she works at the university, and it's her son's 21st birthday party. And so she took me to the other side of the island, and I showed up and they were having a big family festival. They were building an emu, which is an underground oven to uh, roast pork, and they had all kinds of food. So I talked to her husband about how he grew up across the bay, we were on their family lands. The interesting thing is I went out with the kids. It's the son's 21st birthday and I went out with him and his friends on some kayaks and some canoes. They were sitting out there in the water, drinking a nice frosty Miller Lite. And they're all Hawaiian studies or Hawaiian language students at the university. So we're out there and it's sort of awkward because I'm this just extra dude hanging out there. So I ask, you know, what do you want to tell me about living in Hawaii? Something that I realized is there's a large independence movement because they're all native Hawaiian. They point out that, you know, they were colonized. They were not, they did not join the union under a treaty. It was sort of against the will that they became a territory and then a state. And so, Heliopo's uh, husband was telling me that there was a real push by native Hawaiian speakers to reclaim the language. And there was a, professor at University of Hawaii who interviewed people in native Hawaiian and has this series of, of interviews that he archives to sort of keep the language alive and talk about the, the culture growing up. And these 21-year-olds, these young adults, are trying to reclaim that language. And one of them said this really interesting thing, we saw a sea turtle come up for air, and he talked about this idea of this concept called ia, ia, which means breathing but also means freedom, independence, and sovereignty. He described this metaphor of being a sea turtle in the waters. Those waters represent sort of westernization, American colonization, the corporate economy. And when they get together with friends and fellow native Hawaiians and family, it's like coming up for air, that taking a breath. Pua, I think that's what it's called for turtles taking a breath of air. But he has this idea of breathing and independence. It's the one time that they get to feel free and out of those waters. and. And I went back, and we had some great food, some great sweet and sour pork, some homemade poke straight from the sea. Uh, Try this thing called poi. 
Poi. It's uh, this taro root paste with uh, with animal fat. I am not a fan. It is grayish, purple in color. Papa does not like. Then I talked to Haile Okua, and she talked about how for her uh, thesis project, she wanted to do a Hawaiian language play or a play about the, the myths of native Hawaiians. And she she couldn't find one, so someone said, all right, you need to write it. So she wrote this play about one of the Hawaiian gods, entirely native Hawaiian. She put it on stage at University of Hawaii. And one thing she asked is, why do I, why do I do theater? Who's it for? She talked about how it's really for the people in the community, those native Hawaiians. And one thing she said is she said this beautiful thing. She said, you know, play, play making is about the flow. You know, we are the water, we rearrange the sands on the beach, and that's what theater is. We're just rearranging people's thought process and kind of rearranging how people think about things. And so she got it. She said, I don't want to go to Broadway, I want to create theater for people in this community to tell their stories because it's there's a spiritual aspect to it. The storytelling that happened when I was a kid when people would pass on these legends now gets to be experienced in a community space. When the next day, Callie uh, woke up and we, uh, we went out canoe surfing super early in the morning. I had never heard of canoe surfing, but it was uh, it was amazing. So basically you paddle out. I'm with this uh, man named Alan and this guy named John. And Alan actually works with the Native Hawaiian Liberties Union to help Native Hawaiians fight legal battles for land and you know, housing, sovereignty, and so to create precedents for Native Hawaiians to sort of fight. So the cool thing about canoe surfing is you kind of paddle out, you've got, you're in this canoe with sort of a sidecar flotation bikes row out and then you wait and then you get a wave and you row really fast and then you kind of get on the wave and it's just like surfing except for you're in a canoe continue on east okay michelle that was me circa 2019 explaining this life-changing thing that happened to me does it spark any thoughts within you yeah i mean one as a transplant to hawaii and as someone who isn't native hawaiian uh, ethnically or by birth or by culture even, I don't pretend to have the same depth of understanding as they do the same sense of you know, home rooted in this earth in the Aina that they're living on and their ancestors have lived on. I can only speak as sort of also an outsider perspective, even though I've lived in Hawaii, because you know the issues that they're bringing up are not the issues that I myself lived with and experienced growing up. We were made aware growing up a bit about the history of how the U.S. came to have control over Hawaii, but it was certainly very whitewashed, very niceified for the children, sort of in the same way that, you know, then the Native Americans gave the pilgrims food and they had a feast. You know, you'd always get the sense that there was a little more going on when you'd see some of the protests, you'd see some of the parades happening that were going parallel to say this 50th state fair celebrating statehood you'd see this whole other side of events that were against statehood and you know growing up as a kid i always wonder like huh what's that about i don't really know but especially in recent years when you know a more thorough re-examining of history in all regards but particularly in colonial regards has sort of come to the forefront of our conversations I've become much more aware of what that history actually entailed and actually was. 
in my experience, the vast majority of people from Hawaii who, you know, have made their political views known would say like, yeah, this was really messed up the way that this came to be. A lot of people are pro taking back Hawaii and making Hawaii an independent nation again. I think there would be a lot of logistical challenges to doing that. But if it could be done and it's what the people wanted, I am all for it. Um, Because I do think that the way that Hawaii was taken, when you actually look at it, was not quite legal and probably wouldn't hold up today. Uh, So it Mm -hmm. probably shouldn't hold up just because it was done in the past. And a question for you about language. Language was such a big part of the conversation when I was there. And I love the account of a professor at the University of Hawaii who went to people who spoke native Mm -hmm. Hawaiian in their lifetime and started to make these recordings to keep the language alive, to open up a a language department. When you were living there, was Hawaiian language heard a lot? Was it a a part of the culture or, or not as much? It unfortunately was not heard very much and unfortunately is still not a part of the mainstream people living in Hawaii culture. Certainly native Hawaiian culture, totally different story, but native Hawaiians by the number are a minority in Hawaii, which, you know, when you think about it is really messed up. Mm -hmm. Um, We would hear Hawaiian language in school when we would sing some songs uh, in fourth grade. I think we stopped in fifth grade, but up through fourth grade, we had mele class, which is Hawaiian singing. So we would sing some songs in Hawaiian, some songs that were just like vaguely about Hawaii or like, you know, the the is version of Country Road, we'd sing that. Um, So we got a little bit of exposure to Hawaiian language that way. And also through chapel, which our our school, once a week, we would go to chapel, um, which was sort of just like school church. Some of the prayers that we would sing along to would be in Hawaiian. So in that sense, we had a, a very superficial exposure to it. Once a week at that chapel, they would teach a Hawaiian word. They'd say, you know, um, this word means cooperation. This word means love. This word means friendship, like nice words. But beyond that, we really did very little. And my school offered Hawaiian language, but everyone said that's a soft option. If you take it, you're not getting into college. So it was sort of tacitly discouraged even though it was offered as one of the language choices. Everyone took Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, French, something more mainstream instead. Is it in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets where Percy Weasley calls Muggle Studies a soft option? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> just, that's just what it, it that's, triggered, triggered for me That there. might be where I got the phraseology. <laughs> <laughs> I know how your mind works. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I've said the word incontrovertible so many times just because (laughs) Michael Gammon says it in the fifth Harry Potter movie. It's become one of my favorite words. So one thing I loved about talking with Hailea Pua is maybe something that'll resonate with with you because it's something that resonated with me is her talking about who is theater for. She did that native Hawaiian play that was in Hawaiian and apparently a producer came up to her and it's like, oh, you've got to take this to Broadway. And she's like, no, this is theater that is made for the audience of my community like getting back to theater as a tool to have a conversation with your community to celebrate your community because I just love the idea of theater having a dialogue with the community making theater for the reasons we all got into it to tell a story for the community you form as a you know ensemble but also telling a story that speaks to that community 
in a total contrast to um, this experience I had, and I don't think this was on the recording, I just need to tell you what happened right after I left this amazing birthday party. Please do. I went back to Honolulu, where I was meeting up with my brother's friend from high school, who is in the military. Mm. And we met at Hooters and sat outside and he was dating the Hooters bartender and he's just like, I love Hawaii. I'm making so much money. Like I love being in the military. My boys, they're my boys. We live in a mansion. Military. Like, yeah. (laughs) The two ends of Hawaii. There is the military vibe. What, was the, what, what role did the military play? For my personal experience, um, larger than you would expect, um, because when I moved to Hawaii, I had no interaction with the military except maybe the two kids in school who were from military families. Uh, but my mom has since remarried to a military psychologist uh, in the army. So it's not the standard like 20-something meathead military let's shoot some guns at a whale vibe that one might joke about um you know he's going on 60 and is a psychologist but through that I've definitely gotten more of a glimpse into the military side of things than I otherwise would I also got more of a glimpse into the military side of things when I was you know back home from college and like aimlessly swiping through tinder just to see what the hawaii pool was like it's mostly military i learned and for for good or for bad if that's your thing (laughs) i I like me a good head of hair so military sort of by default doesn't allow that but definitely um having seen more of the military side of things really is interesting because it's a people who live in hawaii rather a group of people who live in hawaii who are not planning to stay there. They're not particularly trying to build roots and to entrench themselves in the culture because they're just there to, you know, have a good time, do their job, hopefully get to go on some hikes or go to the beach and then, you know, have to pick up and move whenever they get reassigned. Sounds like actors. Sounds like actors, except no actors are going to Hawaii for regional theater production of this. Hawaii doesn't really have a regional theater, but I've gotten to go to like the military bowling alley. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, You pay $2.50 a game and you can play as long as you like. You know, from personal experience, the military is a major plus. (laughs) That being said, you know, you see the news these days about military pollutes Hawaiian waterline, denies doing so, 10 years later still going on. You gotta sort of wonder. I mean, I want to emphasize to people the bombing that took place. Like the military bombed the island of Koho'olawe, which is one of the eight islands. So it's it's not like some little tiny atoll off the coast of nowhere. Like, like it's right there with the rest of the islands. That island is extinct. There is nothing there anymore. It, it wasn't just they tested bombs there. Like the whole thing is dead. No one lives there. The population is zero. Things have come back to an extent. You can't keep nature down forever. But like it is not habitable at this point in time. Think of all the birds. I know. Mm, don't tell me about the birds. I, I really hope the birds flew to a, a neighboring island. It's not that far. Like you can see neighboring islands from each other. Like I, I really hope the birds were like, ah, that landmass right there, I'm going to fly there. And there's luckily not too many like native Hawaiian mammals. So 
you know, hopefully the death toll was low. From a mainland person, which we both have been at one point, like what you think of when you think of Hawaii, the placid exterior, the placid mystique of Hawaii, there's so many more complicated, nuanced things underneath that. I just don't think a lot of folks get to experience because it kind of takes going there to understand it. I would, I, I think it depends how you go there. I think a lot of people go to Hawaii and they park in Waikiki and they get a couple Mai Tais and they take a boat cruise and a scuba lesson and, you know, they get sunburn and then they go home. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, that's most of the people who go to visit Hawaii. Um, and it's, you know, no doubt funny to see when you see the, the red lobster skin of someone with a little spaghetti strap of white like it's hilarious we love to see it but at the same time it, it, it's kind of disappointing you know it, it just it feels like a missed opportunity for them to have gotten a, a better trip well michelle this has been absolutely amazing is there anything else you want to say about birds hawaii spaghetti straps the king and i oh my gosh so much more about birds i, I don't think that there's time to talk about more birds. I don't know. Well, we might be going live on Instagram. People are invested in the show and people are mean about it. That's the two yeah. types of people. They're invested and they love it or they're invested and they're angry. Or third type, they're invested and they're horny. Oh. <laughs> There's have many got, of those. Have you got any of those? I, I've, I've gotten a couple. Nothing too like explicit or threatening. Mostly like, especially now that people are viewing it from all sorts of different countries, I've gotten a lot of like South American and or Italian messages and a lot of like, oh, bellissima, bellissima. I'm like, oh, thank you. Like I took a semester of Italian, so I understand that. And if they say anything beyond that, like it might be mean, it might be horny. I'm like, I don't understand that. Just just a side question. Do you respond? Um. If, okay, so if it's coming from an account that looks like it's a female account and it looks like she's genuinely just expressing like, oh my God, I loved you on the show, like go Slytherin. I'd be like, thanks so much. If it's a male account, no. Mm. If it's horny, no. Yeah. If it's mean, absolutely not. But I haven't gotten too much mean stuff. I'll say three things about it. The first thing is I've tried to use a lot of gosh. Like I'm like, oh gosh, thank you. Like this is... <laughs> Like I oh, oh like like this conversation ends here. The second of, mm -hmm. second thing is I should not have said the Ingorgio comment because I get a lot of things about that. Oh like I set, I teed I'm that sure up for people do. to be perverts. I could talk about Harry Potter forever, but we'll save it for when we go live. Yay. Um Thank you so much, and say hello to Bert. Hey. Of course. Thank you for having me. I don't know if you hear Bert. He, he just started squawking in the last like one minute of our conversation. That's that. He's like, no more good can come from this conversation. <laughs> he's, he's done. Thanks for listening to this episode of 50 States of Mind. The best way you can help is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or just share with your friends. We're really committed to telling the stories across America. So if you know someone who would be good on the podcast, send an email, 50statesofmindusa at gmail.com, or find us on Instagram at 50statesofmind. Thanks for listening.